Okay, time to put on the squeeze, the pincer movement. Romans 1 and Romans 15. Pressing toward the center, pressing toward the heart of Romans, in which the Holy Spirit is pressing toward our center so that he might call us into a life that's outside of ourselves in Christ rather than a life that's curved in upon ourselves in the flesh. So let's take a couple of moments, turn our attention outward and upward. Father, we thank you for another opportunity, not just to be in history, but to make history through coming to know you in your son, Jesus Christ, and in the event of the demonstration of his love at Calvary for us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here tonight in the name of your son and to stand fast in the freedom wherewith we have been made free by his redemptive act. We pray that you'll draw our attention away from ourselves to you, Father, so that in our spirit we will be saying, Abba, Father, well aware of your comfort, kindness, your grace, your unconditional love, your unrestricted mercy, and your perfect grace. We pray tonight for the family of Dr. Billy Graham, whom you've called home to your presence, a man who has faithfully heralded the gospel of Christ for decades in our country. Pray that you'll be with his daughter, Anne, and his son, Franklin, and their families with great comfort and consolation, and that they may enjoy reminiscences their time with their father and of the effect of his ministry. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of praying for those who are hurting in our nation, those that have been the objects of great disaster. We pray that you will bring a comfort through the gospel in the days to come that mourners did not expect, and a hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ to our nation. And we thank you for this privilege of gathering together with like-minded believers in Jesus Christ who have come here for one reason, and that is to cling faithfully to your word where we know we have life. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, Paul, a debtor and a herald, he tends to call himself and describe himself by terms that are not too flattering to the flesh. A slave of Jesus Christ, a prisoner of Jesus Christ several times, a debtor, someone who owes a debt, as we'll see tonight. But more importantly, a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... 
speaking of a herald of, a, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would like to honor the memory of Dr. Billy Graham, who at 99 years of age passed into the presence of his Savior tonight, today rather. And he has been faithful. The Holy Spirit was with him, and he preached Christ. And one of the most notable things that he said, and Kathy reminded me of this today, is when I saw him in an interview one time, and it really influenced me more than many of his messages in which he accentuated the love of God in Christ and the cross, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, which he proclaimed to millions of people and with great effect by the Holy Spirit. But one thing that really impacted me more than anything was when he simply said, when asked by an interviewer, are you a good man? He answered, Jesus Christ is a good man for me. And I think that really sums up the life and the ministry of a man who I regard very highly in the Lord. And I find no fault in the memory of him and in his message in his method, in his life, in his living. He was a a man whose ministry and life was scandal-free, but he did preach the gospel in which there was the scandal of the cross. And my my thoughts today were directed toward his children. My prayers today were directed toward his God. And I just uh, couldn't start tonight without fond remembrance of him and my brother in Christ who's with the Lord. Now in Romans 1, Paul hints at the reason why he has been prevented so far from coming to Rome. We saw this a, a bit on the right flank of Romans in Romans 15. It's because, as he fully explains in Romans fifteen twenty, that he owes a debt and he's about the paying of it. He has been unable to come to Rome as yet at the time of the writing or the dictation of this epistle because of the implementation of the payment of that debt. And in Romans 1.14, we'll just take off right here. He says, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians. Those are simply non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. I put in my translation here, and you'll see it in print someday, Greeks, in quotes, barbarians, in quotes, the wise, in quotes, and the foolish, all those groups, in quotes. He who introduced himself to the Roman saints as a slave of Christ Jesus now calls himself a debtor to all people. The word here is O-P-H-E-I-L-E-T-E-S. Ophiletes means a debtor. Slaves, in fact, were often debtors themselves, and that's why we have this phrase called bond slaves. People would enter into a period of slavery in order to pay debt that they could not pay. So the way to pay was to become a worker without wages for the one to whom they owed the money. 
A debtor is one who is under obligation to do a thing. The idea of debt or obligation is deployed in Romans by Paul in both a positive sense and a negative sense. And that's why one of the reasons I do the Greek is because, one, the only way to interpret properly the New Testament is to do it with the original Greek language. But secondly, it's so that I can follow where that word is found elsewhere in the Greek text. And then you find and you discover great themes and motifs and correlations. And so ophaletis, which is the noun, also has its verbal form, and it's deployed as a word and an idea throughout Romans. So we've already noted that the Gentile saints in the churches in Greece, Achaia, that's southern Greece, Macedonia, that's northern Greece, they put together a, an enormous collection, a financial collection, to go to the suffering saints in Judea and Jerusalem who were suffering under persecution by their own brethren. And Paul said, of course, they, the Greek churches owe it to them. They owe it. Or they were obligated to the church in Judea in Romans 15, 27. And this is in keeping with the fact that salvation is from the Jews. Jesus himself says this in John 4, 22. Salvation is from the Jews. Now, of course, salvation is the act of God. But we can say, in this sense, salvation is from the Jews because from the Jews, katasaka, according to the flesh, Christ came. And he is the Savior. He is the saving God. He is the one whom to see is to see God's universally saving act enacted. And in Romans 9, 4, and 5, we have that. From them came the Messiah. So the Gentiles benefited with great spiritual benefit from the Jews, and so they're gathering a collection of finances for the Jewish Christians was only fitting. That's what Paul was saying. He wasn't making it a legalistic obligation. And moreover, as we learn from Romans 11, and we'll learn again, the root that bears the Gentile Christians is Israel, or rather the Messiah who came from Israel, according to the flesh. From the Jews, in that sense, the spiritual blessing of salvation came to the Greeks. So, Paul said, it's reasonable that the Greeks would put together a collection to help the poor, the ostracized, the now jobless because of persecution, Jews in Judea, because they, they reaped from the Jews such spiritual benefits, they ought also to allow the Jews to experience some of their material overflow. So from that, in that sense, from the Jews, the spiritual blessing of salvation came to the Greeks, or the Greco-Romans, or the Greek world. Consequently, the Greeks, who were giving materially to alleviate the suffering and persecuted church Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were simply paying what they owed. There's that concept of obligation, debt. 
This, of course, is a manner of speaking by Paul, whose goal in preaching the gospel in Rome is to bring about peaceful unity among the warring factions of saints in Rome. Now, that's an important thing to grab a hold of. That's one reason why he wants to preach the gospel in Rome. As was suggested before, and I think I'm looking at verses or small passages of Scripture which distill what Paul's doing in Romans or what God is doing in Romans. I think Psalm 85.8 is a good one. God, Yahweh, will speak peace to his people. Romans, the epistle, is Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking peace to his people, producing harmony, unity. For where the brethren are gathered together in unity, there is the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of, we could say, the experience of it. And there the gospel goes forth with power from a, from a unified people, not a shattered, scattered, fragmented, polarized people. The gospel, in fact, is even called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15. It's an announcement of peace because it's about the reconciliation of all things, all beings in Christ. It's called the gospel of peace, again, in Ephesians 6.15, because it's about the reconciliation of all things to God and the reconciliation of people one to another. And that means people groups one to another. 2 Corinthians 5.19-21, Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.20. Those are three good verses to grab a hold of the universal nature of God's reconciling work in Christ. In Romans 8.12, we have kind of a negative use of the word obligated or indebted. And we'll get there. That's at the heart and center of Romans where the power of the gospel issues in a life that is extra say, outside of yourself, and saves us from that life that is curved in upon oneself. See if I can remember Sunday morning. Curvaturae in ad se. Curved in on oneself. That's the effect of the power of sin in each individual life. A curvature in upon oneself. The more of a powerful and lengthy dealing with that comes from Sunday morning's message, which I did not emotionally say, I still say, was the most important message that I ever preached. And it's because of several reasons that I think we'll find by the time we get to the heart of the heart, the X-ring of the bullseye of Romans, in which salvation comes through the gospel to each individual as the effect of God's power calling us and bringing us outside of ourselves to live unto God. And that's where the experience, if we want to call it that, of salvation is found. It is not found in ourselves. It is found extra se, outside of ourselves. The antithesis of salvation is curvaturae in ad se, which is Martin Luther wrote in the Latin about it. It's called curving in upon oneself. 
That's where you get self-absorption. That's where you get preoccupation with self. That's where you get neurotic and sometimes psychoneurotic anxiety syndromes. That's where you get worry that blends into other worries that creates other worries until your life is a bundle of worries. And fear begets fears until your life is marked by fear. And so the salvific act of God is the driving out of all fear by perfect love. Love being made fully perfect in us. Our salvation, right down to our individual salvation in our existential historical living, is a living outside of ourselves in Christ. It is, I was crucified with Christ. That's the life curvaturae in ed se, the life that is curved in upon itself. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I, extra se, I, the life outside of myself, live. And yet not I, curved in upon myself, but Christ lives in me. And then the life that I live, extra se, outside of myself, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. To frustrate the grace of God is to live in a life that's curved in upon itself and that ascends to be like God or attempts to in the epitome of self-glorying religion. And that's where Romans 6.1 through 8.13 is going to take us, and then Romans 8.31 to 39 will take us into the inner security, which is a psychological and spiritual state in which we have no need of self-boasting. And so there's nothing in us that would create offense in others. There's nothing in us that would be harmful. And we will be, as Paul said, like harmless lights in our generation. But that's the heart of the heart. That's where the X-ring is at the heart of the bullseye. That's where we're going. And I think you'll see why I consider Sunday morning's message to be the most important message God has ever given me to proclaim because of that concept, because it's more Christocentric than I ever thought we could be through the gospel, more soteriocentric. The question, is Romans, soter- is Romans the epistle soteriocentric? It is, is it in the heart of it a soteria, a salvation? And the answer is yes, because the name Jesus means salvation. Yahweh who saves. Yehoshua. Our God is a God who saves. So if he judges, he judges to save. If he condemns, he condemns to rectify. If he judges, he judges to save. And when he saves, he brings us to judgment, which is merely an evaluation in which rewards are given for nothing particularly of ourselves. So then... In Romans 8, 12, Paul puts a strong point on the fact that he says we are not debtors. There's the negative use. We are not obligated, not debtors to the sinful flesh to live according to its dictates. That's freedom. 
people live according to the dictates of the flesh or the sinful flesh, they think they, they really think they have to. The buzzer goes off. Okay, here's that situation you dreaded. It's time for you to be stressful. That's what that is, is an indication that is actually a dictatorial mandate from the flesh for you to be stressful, for you to be anxious. It really goes against things like Jesus said, like be anxious for nothing. We're in no, we have no indebtedness to the flesh to obey it in its mandates or to live according to its dictates. Time for you to lust now. Time for you to be angry. Time for you to react with rage. Those are all the dictates of the flesh. You're not obligated to live according to their dictates. That's freedom. That's freedom. Jesus called that freedom. Because if anyone is, he said, a slave to sin or the power of sin, then they're still enslaved. That's still slavery. You can be politically free. You can be a liberated person. You can march on Washington and express your woes and your disagreements. You can do all that and think you're free. But if sin still controls you and you still believe you have to be obedient to the dictates of the sinful flesh, you're still a slave in the wrong sense of slavery. To be a slave of Jesus Christ is to be free from slavery to sin, which is the ultimate slavery. So the ultimate freedom is slavery to Jesus Christ, who does nothing but liberate. In Romans 13, 8, he commands positively, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That goes the other way, doesn't it? And that's right in a passage about the government and the power of government and the power of the sword wielded by the military power of Rome. You say you want a revolution? Well, if you go pick, carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. So let's not think of that one. Now, there's a lot of preachers who preach Christ but carry pictures of Chairman Mao in their mind. They are being transformed into the image of Chairman Mao rather than Chairman Jesus, the chairman of the board, the enthroned one. So, better to be transformed into the image of the one who saves all mankind than the one who tried to destroy it all. So you say you want a revolution, eh? Let me, we'll be teaching on that, and that very subject and answering that very question. Paul considers himself there to, to be in debt and therefore to be obligated to everybody. Because Christ died for all. And therefore, the love of Christ controls him. The love of Christ controls me, Paul said, because Christ died for all. Therefore, all died. So if all died, then don't we owe him owe, owe all the message by which they come alive in Christ? 
So Paul considers himself to be in serious debt and therefore to be obligated to all people and to be bound by the love of Christ who died for all to proclaim the gospel to them. By doing so, what does he do? He actually conveys to them the saving power of God in Christ and in the spirit. That's what the gospel does. It conveys the very power of God, the saving power of God in Christ to people. You don't believe it? Check out Romans 1.16. We might even get there tonight. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And believing there doesn't make it exclusive of people who do not believe. There's a shocker. But we'll explain it. Not all tonight. Don't expect the whole explanation to come in one message. That's why we have many times where we gather together. That's why we'll probably spend a couple hundred hours on Romans before we're done. So he identifies people groups here right off the bat. Greeks, barbarians, the wise, and the foolish. Now I put these four groups in quotes because they represent the perceptions of people in group biases. To the refined Greeks, non-Greeks were barbarians. I mean, if you learned in your textbook all about Plato, and his philosophy, and you learned all about Aristotle, and you learned all about the democratic students and philosophers, then you would consider everybody else to be uneducated and foolish. And so to the refined Greeks, non-Greeks were barbarians. To certain Greeks who considered themselves to be wise, they called themselves that. Remember, let not the wise person boast in his wisdom. To those that were the wise, and later on in Romans 14, we'll find another group called the strong. That's a big one nowadays. You name a school and you say, the school's name, Strong. Name a city and you name Houston, Strong. Boston, Strong. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if it, if it means that you're staying strong in the course of adversity. I, I'm not against that, but... There is a people who call themselves the strong only so that they could compare themselves with other and come up on the better end of the stick, as it were. And so, to certain Greeks who considered themselves to be wise, non-Greeks were foolish. They were untaught. They were uneducated. On the other hand, some Jews who considered themselves to be wise exclusive of the Gentiles, considered themselves to be the guides of the blind. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, yeah, you're blind guides of the blind. And you lead everybody right into the ditch. They follow you. Or, and Paul really takes these guys on in Romans 2. If he doesn't take all these guys on, he takes at least one influential teacher on who teaches people this way. They consider themselves teachers of children, that is, non-Jews. Real wisdom, however, is not determined by culture or by education. 
but by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit with regard to the word of the cross. That's true wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31 tells the story, and I think it's a good uh, enterprise to read those verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 31, closing with a quote of Jeremiah, so that no person would boast in his presence. That kind of wisdom is so that no person is allowed to legitimately boast in his or her wisdom. In Romans 1.16, Paul mentions a couple of other groups, Jew and Greek. And the reason I put these in quotes is because he's already written, and he wrote this before Romans, 1 Corinthians 12.13, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek. So what does he mean by to the Jew and the Greek? In Romans 1.16, Paul mentions Jew and Greek with the Jew first. Now, if you want to start trouble, you've already done it, Paul. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, the Greek means everybody else, just a word for everybody else. The Romans were Greeks because we, you've heard the word Greco-Roman. The Roman culture was kind of a, an outgrowth of the Greco culture, so we have the word Greco-Roman. So he's talking to the Romans here too, but... In the eyes of some Greeks or Greco-Romans who had become saints, and we, I love the word saints better than believers because saints accentuates the act of God. God sanctifies in the act of salvation. And he also awakens faith. So a believer is actually someone whose faith is not of themselves either. But saints is what Paul, that's his favorite choice. He always, he doesn't say to the believers in Rome, to the believers in Colossae, to the believers in Galatia, he said to the saints, because he loves to accentuate what God has done, God's action toward man. But to certain Greeks who had become saints by the action of God, so where's the boasting then, if not in the Lord? But certain Greeks who had become saints by the action of God, the Spirit, the evident primacy of the Jews here must have been an offense to them. But you see, Paul's getting at something right in the heart of the Roman saints, the tenement churches and the house churches in Rome where there was battles going on. He says to the Jew first, to some of the Jews who had become saints, on the other hand, the unconditional inclusion of the Gentiles, that phrase, oh, and the Gentiles too, the Greeks too, they're in. That would have been offensive to the Jews. You're, you're, just, you're just unconditionally including the Greeks here without circumcision and without adherence to Torah like we do and without laboring in the field all day long like we've done. So to some of the Jews who had become saints, the unconditional inclusion of the Gentiles to the elect may have been scandalous. Now, this is the point. At the time of Paul's dictation of the epistle to the Roman saints, certain polarized groups in Rome whose perceived identities lay not so much in Christ. They were in Christ, but they perceived their identities not really primarily in Christ as much as in their cultural, their ethnic, their liturgical, or their performative heritage. So each of these groups had a bias 
that their own clique was especially privileged by the election of God. So what we have to understand here is that Paul wrote Romans, and we get this from the pincer movement. We've, my intention is to interpret, and the, the method of interpreting is the pincer movement. We start on the left flank, Romans 1 through 4, and we go to the right flank, we go both flanks, Romans 12 through 16, we press toward the center. And it gives us some interpretive keys that are surprising. So each of these groups had a bias which made them resentful of the other group for one reason or another. Romans, the epistle, was written by Paul to remedy this divisiveness by demolishing these biases. Now, does this have an application to our nation? You better bet on it. It certainly does. Divisiveness is going to be the destruction of our nation. It's already destructive of our nation. This kind of divisiveness rooted in biases. And hatred. You know, the reason I don't like watching the news is because many times it's an expression of hatred. And the news that Walter Cronkite didn't used to do that. He just reported the news. And that's what I'm supposed to do, so I'll carry on. I'm supposed to report the news. One of my goals is that none of the people who listen to my teaching will know where I am politically. <laughs> where are you? Who did you vote for? What? You know, I'll never t- I'm probably never going to tell you unless you ask me personally, and then I'll probably not tell you. I think the solution to our nation's problems lies beyond politics anyways. But So Paul has written Romans to remedy this divisiveness, Yahweh to speak peace to his people, demolishing the biases. That may not be his only purpose, and I'm not saying that it is, but it is certainly one of the salient ones, one of the prominent ones. The gospel pertains equally to all people groups to all individuals consequently Paul goes on to say let's continue in our exegesis I'm trying to remain fairly lean to the passage of the text itself in 115 so I'm eager to preach so consequently he say I'm eager to preach the good news to you who are in Rome too he's kind of hinting at something here because he's saying because where you are, there's Greeks and Jews and wise and foolish and weak and strong. So I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel there too. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now this is a passage we're going to hit. We're just taking the first swipe at it here. Because this is loaded. I mean loaded. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation. There it is. Soteria. Salvation is the gospel is Romans soteriocentric centered in the saving act of God. I would say yes, because that saving act is a person. And therein. It is the power of God for. 
I'll do some Greek because I don't want to lose touch with this. Soterion. Soterion. Because the accent falls here. Soterion. We get the word soteriocentric from that. Soterios. Centered in a saving act. God is centered in a saving act. In fact, God himself is the saving act for his creation. So, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, verse 17, we have an inferential phrase here. In other words, I've actually translated it this way to give the sense. He says in verse 17, I say not ashamed because by it the righteousness of God is, and let's use this as a verb now from now on, apocalypsed. Revealed is too general. This is the word apocalypsed, which means radically disclosed, dramatically disclosed. Disclosed. Unveiled is too weak for apocalypto. Apocalypsed. Therein, that is, by it, the gospel. The righteousness of God is apocalypsed from faithfulness to faithfulness, just as it is written. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in a very monumentally important way. The righteous one and I, in my view, that is Jesus Christ himself, because he's called the righteous one in First Peter 3.18. He's called the righteous one in Deutero Isaiah. He's called the righteous one in First John 1, referring to Billy Graham. He's the righteous man for me. If any man sin, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So it's enough for you tonight to know that the righteous one is Jesus. We'll we'll live from ek, pistios, meaning because of his faithfulness. Because of faithfulness. This is a centering, this centers in on Jesus Christ because he is the righteous one. He lives, that means he lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness to God to the extent of death by crucifixion. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live because of faithfulness. Now, that also means ultimately that you and I live because of his faithfulness. It does not mean that we do not believe. It does not mean that we are not encouraged or even mandated to be faithful. And to trust the Lord with all of our heart and lean not to our our own understanding. It does not mean that we are without obligation. Not at all. But here the righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live from faithfulness. So the gospel apocalypses, which means dramatically discloses, the universally saving action of God in Christ. What's there to be ashamed of? The doctrine of hell? I used to be, I was ashamed of the gospel because I thought it included the doctrine of hell. So you'd tell somebody this wonderful good news and they'd say, well, what if I don't want to believe? Well, then there's hell forever and ever for you. 
And I was thinking of that today. If someone, it was a very cruel song. I think it was sung by Phil Collins. If you told me you were drowning, I wouldn't lend a hand or something like that. I wouldn't, you know, I can feel it coming in the air tonight, that song. It's, it's a catchy tune, but it's cruel. But imagine Jesus saying, well, I saw you drowning, but I didn't help you because you didn't call out for help. I saw you drowning, but I didn't call. I didn't reach down and save you because you didn't pray to me a sinner's prayer. He doesn't do that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it does not include elements to be ashamed of. What's there to be ashamed of in the gospel? The doctrine of hell? Or how about this? Your IQ? You ashamed of that? Are you ashamed? Mike, you're ashamed of your IQ because it's so high, right? (laughs) Never mind. He's going to answer me. Never mind. That's intelligence quotient. So what is there to be ashamed of in the gospel? I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of in the gospel. What are you ashamed of? Your racial heritage? Your ethnic origin? Your class level? On the other hand, what are you proud of? That's a question we're answering on Sunday morning, so I'll leave it for that. Romans 1, 16 to 17 may indeed be a kind of thesis statement. That's where a lot of the commentators come down. It's a thesis statement for Romans. It's the statement that Paul unfolds throughout. And I I don't disagree with that as far as the doctrinal part of Romans, that there is a thesis statement, and it's right here in Romans, and that righteousness here means the saving act of God in Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it, in it is apocalypsed the saving act of God in Christ. What, would is, what is it right for God to do in righteousness, if not save those who require saving? That's the right thing for the saving God to do. Our God is a God who saves. And only by him do we escape the snares of death. Isaiah, or make that Psalm 68, 20. I've just, the reason it was difficult preparing tonight's message is so many things are starting to come in, like so many inroads into my mind about Romans, especially Romans 16, 25 to 27, which I consider to be enormously significant, that I was trying to just get this out here because I'm teaching Romans too, verse by verse, you see. So it's, it's, pray for me in that regard, please. Don't say my prayers go out to you. Say, my prayers have gone to God for you. You see a person in his study, and he's drowning under all this pressure, and he says to God, what's all this pressure? And God says, people's prayers have gone out to you (laughs) instead of up to me. (laughs) So, once I prayed for a person with a, a kidney stone and he didn't get healed for 30 days and so he said never pray for me again so this i should have said well maybe god sent that to you to humble you and billy graham actually said that about his he was in his 80s he got uh he contracted parkinson's disease and you know what he said he said i think god sent this to me at this time in my life 
so that I would be more dependent upon him. Wow. Pretty good take. That's true, too. It's true. What a take. I love it. So, if I'm taking my time, it's because I'm batting away a hundred other thoughts to stay true to this one thing here. The gospel apocalypses the saving act of God in Christ. And it is a thesis statement. But what, what else is he doing here? He's doing something very practical here. He's doing something. Look what he does here. He says to the Jew first, already that reproves. All doctrine is for reproof. It's profitable for reproof. Already he's reproving or rebuking the Gentile Christian sense of superiority or primacy, which he really takes on in Romans 11. Paul is under obligation to proclaim the gospel of God's son to everyone because it is the universally saving power of God as well as the individually saving power of God to everyone who believes. So God in one sense now, in one sense has already saved everyone. Have you not read the scripture which says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? But to the one who believes, the power of that salvation begins to be revealed or disclosed to them. They are shocked right out of their curvature in upon themselves. And they begin to, I think the word experience is safe, experience this salvation in some measure. Because they are, to experience this salvation is to live extra, say, outside of yourself in Christ. To live by the faithfulness of another. And to have a hope. Not a hope that things will get better on earth, but a hope that Jesus Christ is going to universally appear and every eye will see him, and every knee will genuflect him, and every tongue will acknowledge him. Or pledge allegiance to him is the correct translation, as we'll see. To all those who believe, now listen carefully. The faith or the believing that is spoken of here does not denote the condition for one's salvation. Or for one's justified status before God. It is the condition, faith is, for one's personal realization or discovery of this status. So to all those who believe does not mean that those who do not believe are excluded. It merely means that to those in whom God has awakened faith, faith that's not of yourselves, to those in whom God has awakened faith so that they're believing, the gospel has salvific power. It has it to them. To me, the gospel has salvific power. So someone says, I don't believe it. And to me, the gospel is nonsense. That's because only by believing is the power of God for salvation revealed to you. 
I'm going to iron that one out a lot in the future. So don't think you missed it. Because that's a profound doctrine. Now there is great joy and peace in believing. Let's go to the right flank. Romans fifteen thirteen. He said, I want you to all experience the great peace and joy in believing. Believing results in peace and joy. By grace you've been saved through faithfulness, the faithfulness of the righteous one, not of yourselves, that not of yourselves, that not of yourselves, that not of yourselves. One phrase in Ephesians 2a that just pulls the rug out from underneath your curvature in upon yourself and my curvature in upon myself. What was the creature, angelic creature's first problem a curvature in upon himself he became enamored of his own beauty and what was the first problem of the first man and woman a curvature in upon themselves where they became painfully self-conscious and were aware of their nakedness and sewed fig leaves and started religion and ran from God they were ashamed I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the end of shame. Today, the big thing is shaming people. They shame each other through the media and through social media and through whatever these things are called, snap something or other or whatever. Shame. Today's the first time in history where people are shamed because of the color of a dress that somebody wears. I mean, be not anxious for what you put on or don't put on. Or Everybody has to represent something by some external means. And if you don't, you're shamed. But does this culture need the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. By believing, we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, says Romans 15, 13b. So Paul's not trying to emphasize faith as the condition for salvation or for justification. And I'll prove that over and over again in Romans. He's not stressing, rather, he is not stressing faith as a condition for salvation. You know, what he is stressing is that both Jews and Greeks, as well as barbarians, are the objects of God's saving power. That's what he's stressing. The obligation of Paul to all human beings that Paul expresses on the left flank. Now, I said let's do the pincer, so the last few minutes will be devoted to the right flank. Let's go to Romans 15 now. The obligation that Paul felt to all human beings on the left flank of Romans the epistle is matched on the right, by his priestly obligation to the gospel of God. He's indebted now as a priest to perform a priestly function, which is to see to it that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So see how something in the left flank connects with, correlates with something in the right flank. 1514 of Romans. Now, I myself am convinced about you, my siblings, that you are full of beneficence. 
that's good and that's the benevolent impulse because of the Holy Spirit in them. Filled with all knowledge. That means you're, you are equipped with enough knowledge to encourage each other, to instruct each other, to teach each other. And so you don't need me to do anything. But he says, he, what he's saying here is, but I'm pulling rank a little bit here because I said some things with audacity. Even though I didn't plant the church there, I pulled rank as an apostle for certain reasons that I wanted to remind you of some stuff from outside because I, I, know, I know you can handle it all within yourself. I th- I had come to that, I've come to that same conclusion. I don't think I'm needed anywhere particular. I don't think you need me. I think you're all competent to instruct one another and that there are pastors in this place that could instruct you. I don't think I'm needed. I'm not here because I'm needed. I'm here because God called me. And that's all I need to know. It's based on need. Anyone would have a nervous breakdown. Nobody's indispensable, and nobody is irreplaceable. And Paul even says as much here. He says, I myself am convinced about you, my siblings, that you are all full of beneficence, that is, with divine Benevolence, filled with all knowledge. That means you've got it. You know enough that you're able to instruct one another. But notice verse 15. He says, nevertheless, I have written to you quite audaciously, boldly, he says. This is the audacity of Paul. And I put in in the brackets here, pulling rank, as it were. Paul's pulling rank. He doesn't do it very often, but he does it here. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's got a right to do this if he wants, and he takes it. He says, even though you're all self-sufficient there to do this, I have written to you quite audaciously on some points by way of reminder. Some points, all right. Like Romans 11, like you Gentiles, the root bears you. You don't bear the root, and the root are the Jews. And why do you hate each other and despise each other and judge each other? You see, he's doing something from outside objectively, that they never would have probably got to on the inside. So they, would have been, they, got, they got good teachers, but they'd never be unified. So he does this. And he says, so I writ, I've written to you quite boldly or audaciously on some points by way of a reminder through the grace that was given to me. What? What grace to do what? To be a minister accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. Accountable, obligated. Here's the obligation. To perform the priestly obligation of proclaiming the good news of God, my purpose being that the offering of the Gentiles, here's a priest, his sacrifice is is the nations themselves, the Gentiles, the nations, we could say, would be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Who are you? Someone sanctified by the Holy Spirit, a saint. Something, someone acted upon by God. What do you have to boast in? Except the Lord. And that's what Paul says next. Look at what he says. Consequently, I have a reason to boast. There it is again, all the way through Romans. We're fanning out Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 on Sunday mornings. That's a big task in itself. But I have a reason to boast, he says, in Christ Jesus. About the things that pertain to God. And then here's the sense of verse 18. For my audacity does not extend to speaking of anything except what Christ has 
accomplished through me. To bring about the obedience of the Gentiles by word and act. That's Paul's words and Paul's actions that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. As he says in verse 19, through powerful signs and wonders by the Spirit of God. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the good news about the Christ in an ark. The word is kuklos or circle, but ark is the word from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum, which might be somewhere in Eastern Europe. So this is something I'll take up maybe again tomorrow night, Lord willing, to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles is what he says here. He preaches the gospel to bring about an obedience in the Gentiles or the nations. It's a phrase on the right flank here in Romans 15 of Romans 1.5 on the extreme left flank where Paul speaks of his task as an apostle to, quote, bring about the obedience that is faith in all the nations. Gentiles has a several nuances of meaning. You can have Gentiles, the ethne, or the nations. And that means all the nations outside of Israel, and sometimes it means all the nations, including Israel. When he speaks of bringing about the obedience of faith, listen carefully to this, very carefully to this. When he speaks about of bringing about the obedience of faith, he means bringing the nations to allegiance to Christ, the Davidic king, the son of David, resurrected from the dead, who is Lord of the living and the dead. In other words, his message is intended to bring the nations into an allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He doesn't do this by subverting Rome, but boy, does this eclipse Rome right out of the picture. The Roman Empire with its boasting and its wisdom and its boasting and its strength and its boasting and its wealth. He basically brings down the Roman Empire here (laughs) without trying to bring down the Roman Empire without engaging in a revolution, but only preaching the gospel in Rome. In fact, he doesn't, he's not a revolutionary against Rome. You know what he does with Rome? Doesn't even really think about it. Just like an idol is nothing. And as Isaiah 40 and verse 15 says to God, the nations are a drop in the bucket and a speck on the scale. Doesn't change the weight of anything. I just love the way God talks, especially in Deutero-Isaiah, which is the most oft quoted in the New Testament, the second Isaiah, 40 to 55. So just tracks to run on for tomorrow night. In both 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11, and I said these would have huge interpretive value for Romans, the pastoral epistles, in both 1 Timothy 2.7 and 2 Timothy 1.11, he uses the word herald. He's a, he's a debtor in one end, but he's a herald. A herald is a kerux. That's how you say it in the Greek, a kerux. That's a proclaimer of a kerygma, a proclamation. He's, a, he's employed by the king to make an announcement and to deliver commands of the king. And so if we allow... 
This word herald is used again. 1 Timothy 2.7, look it up. 2 Timothy 1.11, look it up on your own. The word herald, kerux, precedes, and therefore precedes in importance the other two things Paul says that he is. And that's apostle and teacher. Before apostle and teacher, he's herald. Herald. Hark the herald Paul. Or proclaimer. Now, if we allow the word Gentiles, the meaning of nations, ethne, and that's one of the primary nuances, if we allow the meaning of nations, and if we understand the meaning of preacher or kerux as a herald, then we're able to understand Paul both as proclaiming Jesus Christ as king of kings and as commanding allegiance to him as such. And so the English Bible in basic English, it sounds redundant, but it's the it's a actual translation. The English Bible in basic English conveys the sense of what Paul's doing when he says to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. And they translate it this way as to put the Gentiles under his rule. To put the Gentiles under Christ's rule. That's what a herald does. And Paul's a herald of the gospel. He's announcing the kingdom of God in a resurrected, crucified Savior. My God is a crucified slave. My God is a crucified slave. My God is a crucified criminal. Considered a criminal. Crucified with criminals. My God is a crucified man who is God and who is now resurrected from the dead, who was crucified in weakness and that lives by the power of God. I have been crucified with him. That life that is curved in upon myself died writhing on a cruel cross. But that which came out from the grave to live by the faithfulness of the Son of God is a life extra say, outside of myself, which is Christ living in me. Now, don't follow me around 24-7 to see if Christ is living in me and not me myself, because that only works moment to moment, a moment here, a moment there. Sometimes it's a moment, and that's the only moment in your entire life. You were saved in a moment when you were outside of yourself. You lived inside of yourself and curved inside of yourself the rest of your life. And remained in Christendom, which is nothing but the world and the flesh with a Christian outward profession, which is what turns the world off. So the point of Paul being a herald of the king is he's charged with bringing about the allegiance of the nations of the earth to Jesus Christ. Now, here's a warning, and I'll close with this warning. There are books that will be coming out and people that will be teaching, a new trend in teaching, a wind of doctrine that's going to blow around. And it's that is you are saved by your allegiance. If faith here, the obedience of faith is allegiance, then you're only saved by allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like making him Lord again. And I would say to them, yes, you are. Saved by allegiance. The allegiance of Jesus Christ, which was his obedience to the Father, 
to the extent of death by crucifixion. That's the allegiance by which I am saved. But I also have the privilege of participating in that very allegiance and living by that very faithfulness of the Son of God to the Father, participating in it with a sense of deep obligation. That's why I don't understand. I mean, I try to go through it in my mind. What do you do in a profession like preaching? Is there a retirement thing? Do you retire? Do you? And the answer is, if you're obligated to preach the gospel to all men, then it seems like that's what we got to do until the last breath we draw. So, King of kings and Lord of lords is who he is. That's enough for tonight. I'm going to have to carry on. I, I really wanted to finish this up with, eh, I got another eight minutes, but we'll have something to start with tomorrow night. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And I'm very grateful that our Lord Jesus Christ is already the Lord of the living and the dead for the privilege of announcing that to people. Because we don't have to bring about the faith. We just have to proclaim the good news, be a witness of the reconciliation of all things to God in Christ by lives that have hope, not just by words of a gospel, but by lives that have hope. By lives that have hope, we are living epistles to the hopeless in this world. That the reconciliation of all things in Christ is the mystery of God's will, which we anticipate to be fulfilled imminently. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity, Father, and I pray that what is said tonight will be as apples of gold in settings of silver and appropriate to each person here tonight. 